Good morning. We're still in our series in Nehemiah. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. It's in the Old Testament, and uh, our series title is Trouble and Disgrace. Trouble and Disgrace, because God's people find themselves uh, as a result of trouble and as a result of disgrace. Uh, they find themselves in both of those things, and we've looked at that the last couple of weeks. Um, you got to remember where we're at in the story, just real quick. The people of God, because they wouldn't listen to the Lord, have been in slavery for 70 years. Um, God promised through the prophet Jeremiah they would be in slavery for 70 years. Then he would bring them out of that. Um, and he had brought them out of slavery. The book of Ezra talks about that. So the book of Ezra um, is when they go into the temple, they build the temple. And now you've got the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is now coming back to build the walls. Nehemiah uh, is the one God called to do that. And so... What we're going to look at this morning that's pretty simple is fear, remember, and respond. Um, let me ask you, what are you afraid of? And I don't mean like spiders or snakes or that kind of stuff. What, what is it that, that gives you that feeling of like angst or anxiety? That, that feeling of like, I hope that doesn't happen to me. I hope that I don't have to go through that. I hope that never is what transpires in my life. Because if we're really honest, that's kind of the thing that really defines where our fear is. For a lot of people, it's like, well, I hope I never get a terminal illness. I, I just, I hope I never do that. I hope I never end up in financial straits that I can't control. Like, we say all these things and we, we think all these things and it really exposes what we believe about the world around us, right? It, it exposes what we think we deserve. It exposes what we want to avoid, and then what happens is we remember others who have had terminal cancer, others who have been in trouble with finances or with whatever, and then what happens is we look at what they've done to keep from having that, and so then we respond in like, kind, right? The only problem is we never check with God. We never take our fears to God. We never remember what God has done and what he's put his people through and what the world around us has been created to be, which is supposed to be perfect, but we made it a mess. We forget all that, and then what happens is we end up making responses that may not be the responses that God has for us. And then we have to go back and deal with the reality of that. Because the response that we're supposed to have in our culture is one of worship. It's one of, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to lay my fears before him. I'm going to trust him. And really, our fears, our fears are really kind of what define us, right? I mean, if you truly fear the Lord above all else, that will define you and people will know it. There will be something very evidently different about your life, your decision-making, the things you remember, the way you talk about the things you remember will be very different than someone who's afraid of what people might think by what they tell and say and do. Like, like it really does drive us, which is why you see this all over the Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. It's everywhere. And then the other word God uses all the time through the Bible is remember, 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 remember. I mean, it's constant. Every book, remember, remember. And then God says, now, how are you going to respond to what you are afraid of? And the memories that you have, some that are very painful and awful that you can't do anything about, some that, that are good. But you don't just want to say, well, I want to keep having those good memories. I don't want to suffer. I never want to, so, so I just, I'm going to, because see what happens is 
when we remember, we tend to look back wrongly, right? We do. We need other help people to help us sometimes remember properly. They've done studies on this, where, where we tend to remember back the way we want to remember things. Sometimes we want to remember it way worse than it was. Sometimes we want to remember it way better than it was, right? We just don't want to deal with the reality of the way it was and deal with the reality of the brokenness. And then what happens is when we don't deal with that, we start making responses that define our life and it's, it's just not good. And so I, I just want to look because this morning what we're going to look at is answers to these questions of what is it that you fear? What is it that you remember? And what is it that you should do to respond? Because those are very simple and practical questions and Nehemiah really gets to the heart of it. We pick back up the story If you remember, we'll go back for a second. It says, this book is the words of Nehemiah when he was in the fortress of Susa in Hanani, one of my brothers. And then Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant. The remnant is the people of God that were sent back after 70 years. It's now been a couple decades or a decade after that. And now here they are and they're discouraged. They built the temple and then They started remembering that there's enemies around them. They started panicking. They didn't know how to respond. And now they've kind of just given up. Trust me, that's what a lot of Christians do. It's our response to, I'm afraid. I don't know. Okay, well, we'll just do the best we can. Oh, well. And that's where they find themselves. And it says, they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasted and prayed before the Lord God of heaven, or before the God of heaven. The king granted my request. That's not God as king, but the king that Nehemiah was the cupbearer for, the cupbearer who had to make sure that all the king's drinks were properly made and weren't poisoned. <laughs> that was his full-time job as a slave. Nehemiah was a slave. He didn't ask for that job. He didn't need to choose which job he had. It's just the job he was given. And he was graciously strengthened by the Lord. Last week, we looked at the fact that Nehemiah in 2, 12, 17, 18 said he finally was given permission to go. He went with Calvary and an army and it said, I didn't tell anybody what God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. He asked, do you guys see the trouble that we're in? And then he says, Jerusalem lies in ruins, its gates have been burned down. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that we will no longer be disgraced. He goes back to trouble and disgrace, and he says, this is what the Lord has laid on my heart. And he checked with the Lord. He fasted and prayed. Most of us say, well, God laid this on my heart. We never prayed about it. We never fasted about it. We never talked to anybody about it. We definitely never went to someone in authority and asked them if we should be doing what we God laid on our heart. Oh, no, 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 no. God laid it on my heart, so I need to do it. And we find now Nehemiah in the midst of inspecting the city, they're starting to build, and immediately there's a problem. There's fear that comes in because this is what it says. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. Remember, there were three people that you see in the book of Nehemiah. These three people were ancient enemies of Israel, right? They had not repented. The enemies of Israel could repent. They could embrace the God of Israel. We see that all over the Old Testament. These guys look at Israel and look at God's people as their enemies. They won't repent. They won't ask forgiveness for their father's sins and what happened before them. They want to destroy God's people. They do not want God's people and God's plan to unfold. That's who these guys are. And so when they see that they were rebuilding, 
the wall, they became furious. Why? Because they want God to look bad and they want his people to be squelched. Why? Well, because God's people did some mean things to us in the past. And since God's people did some mean things to us in the past, well, then that gives me the right now to be mean back. Right? And it's that cycle of viciousness that happens in relationships. And, And all it takes is People sitting down and saying, okay, yeah, I'm mad, you're mad, now what does God say about it? Can we both submit to God in what he says about this situation? No, I'm not submitting to God, I want to kill you. (laughs) I'm right and I'm going to come after you. And he says, he mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria in that region and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? The answer to that question, by the way, is no, they can't. If God doesn't help them restore these walls that are completely demolished, they're not going to be able to do it. If God doesn't protect them, if God had not provided Nehemiah to be a slave in the king's house, so the king signed an edict because he trusted Nehemiah so much, to have all the resources Nehemiah needed to build the wall, they would not be able to rebuild the wall. Also, Nehemiah had to be trusted to leave his position and put in position with the king the people he raised up to take care of the king's drink so it's not poison, and the king had to trust Nehemiah to be able to do that and trust the people Nehemiah put in place. Holy smokes, that's a lot going on to get a wall rebuilt that God had laid the groundwork for. And so he says... Can they restore it? No, they can't. Will they offer sacrifices? No, they can't offer sacrifices because it's not about sacrifices. It's about a surrendered heart. And then he says, will they ever finish it? You can just hear the mocking, right? You this, you that, the church this, the church that, God's people that. God, just mock, mock, mock. And then he says, can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? The answer is no, they can't. But guess what? God can. We looked at that. A few weeks ago in one of the messages, talking about how God can take and make living stones. (laughs) He can take a dead stone and make it alive. Jesus said, I can turn these stones into bread. Even Satan, when he tempted Jesus, said, you have the ability to turn these stones into bread if you want to. Do it and prove to me and prove to everybody else you're God. And he's like, I'm not going to test the Lord my God. I could do it if I wanted to, but I'm not going to do it. You see, so these are all the same, like, barbs that we get as believers today. The same mocking, same garbage, it just keeps going over and then we get afraid and we, oh no, they're treating me badly. God, if you were with me, people wouldn't treat me badly. Have you read the Bible? (laughs) It is the story of God's people at war all the time with an enemy, one they can't even see. Like, that's our book. That's who we are, and then we get surprised when, when bad things happen and we're attacked. It's like, oh, and that's what we see happening. And then it says, then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they were building, he would break down their stone wall. In other words, it's just they're like, this is ridiculous. And when the word there is used furious, it's actually two Hebrew words. Some translations say, like, angry and very furious, or very angry and furious, your translation might, might say. There's two words in Hebrew. One is ka'as and the other one is kara. It comes from the same root, which means a burning anger. It is an anger that sets you on fire. Have you ever been that angry? Where it is just burning in you and it's just like you cannot get it out of you and you pray and you try. And that's the anger these guys have. It is a burning anger and the only way to sacrifice or to deal with this anger is to burn something up. 
We set some things on fire yesterday at the chouse, right? Had a lot of brush we had to get rid of. It was a big fire, right? And there's something enjoyable about watching things burn, isn't it? Like it's just, oh, look at it go. And you had all this big mess and now it's just a pile of ash that I can sweep up and throw into the woods. That feels so good, right? These guys want that for God's people. They want to take God, his message, his people, and burn them to ash and scatter them so he can never be known. And it comes from the heart of God's enemy, Satan himself. And we see these guys just mocking. So, Nehemiah says, he recognizes that the people are going to get discouraged. He recognizes that they're being attacked. And what does Nehemiah do? Does he whine and complain? He prays. You'll see a pattern with Nehemiah all the way through this book where he just is constantly going back to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes you don't even pick it up. It's like you're reading the story and all of a sudden it's like Nehemiah's talking in prayer and then we're back to the story again. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. Nehemiah had a heart to know, I can't do this. I'm just a Persian slave who happens to be God's son, as in a member of his family, not as in Jesus, his son. But I happen to be a member of God's family, one of his people. I'm nobody, but for some reason, God's put me in this position, and I'm supposed to do it. And so he says, listen, our God. I love it. He cries out. He says, God, please listen, because I know that, th that we're not worthy to be listened to. I know that there are things that you should be like, I am not listening to that. And then he says, for we are despised. He admits the obvious. We're despised. We're a despised people. He recognizes that that's the history of God's people. We're just despised. That's the way it goes. God is despised. Do you know that the Bible says, Jesus says it often, the New Testament says it really often, that whenever anyone despises you as a believer, when you're doing what's right, right, not when you're an idiot like me sometimes, when you're doing what's right, whenever anyone despises you, they're not despising you, the Bible says. The Bible says they're actually despising God himself. So, so Nehemiah gets this. He's like, we're despised, you know, like you are. And then he said, make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have provoked the builder. It's the same word, kaos, that's used there. They have made the builders so fearfully and, and like angry that they have to build and it's this circumstance. There's all the, the word kaos kind of, it, it kind of, it's like an emotion, like an anger emotion. And when we have anger, we can respond very differently, right? Some people respond in, in like, I'm going to kill somebody. Some people respond in complete depression. They can't move. Anger has a way of causing us to respond differently. And while these guys want to kill somebody, Nehemiah recognizes that what's happening is now the builders who are trying to rebuild the wall have been, have been provoked by this angry fear they have right? Like they're angry this is happening. We're trying to do the right thing. We're following God's man. We're obeying God and we're getting killed for it. We might get killed for it. I mean, we've got a temple. Do we really need walls? I mean, we're able to worship. We don't really need to protect. I mean, God's provided the temple. For... You see where this goes? And then he says, look, so we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. They were afraid. There was anger. But see, at this point, nothing's really happened yet. There's just threats. 
So they have still the will to say, well, we're just being threatened. I can still keep working. We'll see if they do something. And so there's still this will of we're going to build, and they build it up to half its height. That's not very high. And here's the deal. You have to remember that the way they're building the wall is by removing rubble and building the rubble that's in front of the wall up into a wall. So literally what they have now is very nice siege ramps for the enemy to go up and jump in the wall. That's what they've built. <laughs> because there's so much rubble in front of it, it's like, woohoo! Like it's a slide for them to come into the city. That's as high as they've gotten, right? And so it's like, well, Half the work's been done. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, God, when are you going to fix this in my life? When are you going to do this? I feel like you're half done. What's going on? That's exactly where they find themselves. In Ephesians 4, Paul says this. He says, since you put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his own neighbor, because we are members of one another. Remember, they're building the wall together. Each man, the wall in front of his section. And he says, be angry, Paul says. That's a command. That, that, is a, that is an imperative in the Greek. You should be angry. It's okay. Do not sin <laughs> with your anger. You can sin with your anger by being totally depressed and not asking for help and completely withdrawing. That's sinful. That's giving up. God says, don't give up. I'm with you. And you can be so angry that you decide, I'm going to take everybody on, and I'm going to go after everybody, and I'll show you. And that's pride, and it can kill you. But God says you should expect to get angry. It's a normal emotion. It happens. The question is, what do we remember about what God said in his anger that he says, I should destroy you, but I have what? Mercy and grace. And so he looks and he says, don't give the devil an opportunity. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't let the devil have an opportunity. I love this. Paul says, look, anger can sneak in so easily. It can get into your life. It can get in there so quickly and all of a sudden you don't realize that you're giving Sanballat, Tobiah, and these guys an opportunity in your life to keep you from building what God wants to build in your life. It's so subtle. You can be angry about some sin, someone that abused you, something that happened. You can be, and that anger, listen, you can't control the emotion of anger. It's coming. You will have it, I promise. And if you fake it and be like, I'm so not angry. All of the people that know you are like, you are a liar. That's why he says, since you put away lying, speak the truth. I'm mad. And I haven't punched you in the face yet. Praise the Lord. It's okay. Take it to God. Take your anger to him. That's what Nehemiah does. That's what Paul says. Look, this is what we're to do. We're to tell the truth, speak the truth, each one to each other, because we're members of one another. And if one part is hurting and angry, we need to figure out why. We need to help them understand why. We need to help them remember who God is and what he's done before, the things he's defeated before, and we need to help them remember where we're headed. You don't have to live in this, you can, have, you can have joy, you can be free. It doesn't mean you still don't have anger. It just means you have to keep bringing it back to the Lord, which is what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah goes on, he says, when Sambalot 
Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairs to the wall of Jerusalem were progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. This is cha'a. This is the, we're going to take action, furious. Like this is, this is, heads are going to roll. The word furious there is this idea of this burning anger that I'm going to do something about. That's what it means. Now it's just not three guys giving them a hard time. Who is it? They've got a whole entourage, a posse coming after God's people. They've rallied everyone, all of Israel's enemies, they've rallied together. You ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like everybody's against you? Even your relatives, because some of these people were relatives. The Moabites, Lot was a relative of Abraham. These, some, they've got bloodlines. They're relatives. Everybody's against me. They might be. But they're not against you if you're doing what God wants you to do. They're against him. So what are you so upset about? Take it to God and be like, God, they're really mad at you. I'm trying to do what you want to do. No, we internalize it. We don't remember God. We just remember the life we want, the way we want things to work out. And it says they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. They knew if we can plot together and attack them from different angles, it'll throw them into confusion. They'll stop the work and maybe they'll rebel against Nehemiah. So be it. They're plotting now. Now it went from mocking, ha, 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 and they saw that that didn't work to get it. That kind of fear and causing them to forget God and respond badly didn't work, so now we're going to get serious about actually doing something. So what does, do God's people do? So we pray to our God. You realize that most of the time we don't pray first, we plan first and then we start praying and ask God to bless our plans. We start reading books, reading what other people have done, right? We don't pray, we don't seek God. What we do is we seek a solution that fits what we want. Instead of seeking him, they pray to God and look what else they do. They don't just pray and like, oh Lord, you're just going to have to send fire, you know, asteroids from heaven to fall on Sanballat's head because we can't do anything. It's not what they do. It says, and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. Now the people have given up. They're giving up. This is too hard. It's just too difficult to honor the Lord, to trust him, to believe that he can do something with my life that matters in his kingdom for eternity. I, I just can't believe that. The mess of my life, the rubble of my life, uh, just, it's never gonna happen. So they pray to the Lord. Nehemiah not only prays, as a good leader, he begins to station boundaries. Look, we gotta set some boundaries here so you don't keep going back to that mess, some protection. See, that's what leaders are called to do is to help people set boundaries, hold them to it, and walk them through when they cross it that there's forgiveness, but you gotta go back. There's a boundary. That boundary you don't wanna cross because it could kill you. So there's this burning anger. They pray, there's a plan, but the people are still discouraged. They go on and say, our enemies, and our enemies said, they won't know or see anything until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. In other words, the enemies have even said, we have already sent spies. We're sending spies in that you don't even know that are there, and we're gonna come in, and we're gonna slaughter you before you ever see it coming. 
That's what the Bible says that our enemy does. He tries to disguise himself as an angel of light, the Bible says. There's a reason why the prophet Muhammad saw an angel of light. It wasn't God. It wasn't. The prophet Muhammad did not believe that Jesus was God. He didn't believe Jesus was the son of God, that he died on the cross. So he's a false prophet. I hate, that's just brutal, but it's true. He saw an angel of light, just not God's angel of light. (laughs) The Bible says that Satan wants to send in what? Wolves among sheep. That's his goal, is to send in wolves. Listen, wolves don't break down the door and start trying to bite us. You know know why? Because we'll fight them off. That's not how they do it. Wolves get in by putting on sheep's clothing, pretending like they're a sheep, and then when we're all distracted, somebody gets eaten in the back. Then I look up in a minute, and somebody got ate over there. And I'm like, where'd they, what happened? where'd they go? And before I know it, I look up, and I'm like, there's half the people have been eaten. Where, where'd they go? Well, you've got a wolf in your midst. And they've now spread the anger, the lies. They've caused you to remember things that aren't true. They've caused you to respond badly, and it's destructive. And that's exactly what we see here. And it says, when the Jews who lived nearby arrived... They said to us time and again, listen, every time people would come to the city, every time people would stop by, they kept saying, everywhere you turn, they attack us. Really, everywhere you turn. How did you get here today? I mean, if you made it to the city, how'd you get here if everywhere they turn, they attack you? Well, not me. I mean, everybody else is just so bad out there. Sounds like you had God's grace and you arrived at the city today. Maybe you should be thankful instead of trying to make some sensational thing of everybody's against me. Looks like you made it through. Maybe God has something for you to do, like pick up a sword and defend your brother and sister. See, we go to that place where it's just like we put this weight on us and it's, woe is me, and oh, everybody's attacking, and it's just so terrible. We go down that rabbit hole and the enemy's just looking at us going, I got him. I got them. They won't do anything for the Lord. I can't take away their salvation. I can't take away the fact that they're God's child, but I can make them so miserable that they don't look like God's child and they don't help anyone else become God's child. And we let him do it. I can let him do it because of my fears, because I won't remember what's true, and because then I start responding. And once I start that response... It starts going the wrong way until I stop responding what's natural to me and what I want. And I go, God, I want your response. I'm sorry. Help me. It goes on and says this. Nehemiah says, so I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at Jerusalem, at the vulnerable areas. Nehemiah didn't ignore the fact that they were being attacked. He's like, you're right, this is bad. He goes, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try to put some boundaries up. I'm gonna try to give you some tools, some help. And then he says, I station them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. By families he stationed them. That's genius. This is, I'm not fighting this battle for you. You gotta protect your family, your life. You've gotta set the boundaries. Fathers, your sons are gonna die if you don't pick up and protect them. This is, see, that's what the Christian message is. The Christian message is you are to pick up your cross. I don't pick up your cross for you. That's not my job. We have to respond to God by saying God has called me to be in his family. He's called me with certain authority in my life, the church, if I'm a wife to a husband, if I'm a child to a, husband, to, to a mom and dad. The whole nine structure 
that God, you know, the whole structure God provides for our protection. Nehemiah is making a structure for protection and he puts the family out front. Most Christian families refuse to put their family out front. I got to protect my kids, Nehemiah. How dare you? We're going to live in the interior of the city. We're going to go try to find somebody to hire. A hired shepherd, Jesus says. Somebody we can hire to go protect us while we sit back and we just relax. Because I got to protect my kids. Why don't you teach your kids to pick up a spear and stand on the wall with you? Because that's probably what they're going to have to do when you're dead and gone and the enemies are still coming. It goes on and he says, don't be afraid of them. Have a fear of the Lord, not a fear of everything else. And then he says, remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. He doesn't say, remember all the food you got. Remember all the stuff. He goes, no, no, remember how great God is. Remember how he inspires us. Quit being uninspired and be inspired by his character and who he is and the truth about what he tells us about the world and the things around us. Be inspired by that. Then he says, and fight for your countrymen. Quit looking for everybody else to fight for you and surrender your life and say, with whatever I've got, I'm gonna fight for what God wants and God wants people. He loves his people and I'm gonna fight for that. And I'm gonna stop looking to take advantage and to get the life I want because of my fears. I'm just gonna continue to press forward and press on to what God has asked me to do. And then he says, you'll fight for your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. He says all this because who he's speaking to directly in this passage is men. He is, that's why he makes this list. He's like, you guys need to step up. Oh, and by the way, you're going to get beat up. You're, you're, you're in a war. That's what men are called to do in this world. Anytime you see women having to step up and fight in scripture, God always says that's a sign of weakness and curse, not a sign of strength. Nowhere ever in scripture is it projected as a sign of strength. It's always a sign of weakness and God's grace, his provision, his mercy, but not your good. You're awful, so I'm having to do things outside of the norm. Nehemiah is saying, you men have got to step up. Quit looking for the nobles and whoever else to do your job. You defend your family. You step up to provide and love them. Now, is, do some men find themselves in situations where they can't? Where they have physical illness, where things happen? Absolutely, that's why he says fight for the country, for the men, the countrymen, the church. We're together in this. You're not alone. You're defending your part with your family. They're defending their part. And we work together, he says. And he says, don't be afraid. Remember and respond. He goes, when our enemies heard that we knew their schemes and that God had frustrated it. We don't know how God frustrated their schemes. It's not answered here. Somehow God frustrated their schemes. My guess is they were all excited to go fight against Israel and fight against the Jews. And somebody probably in a meeting said, you know what? I don't want to fight with Sambalot. I don't like him. His son made me really mad one time. And so I'll go battle, but we need to get Sambalot. And then they just infighted with each other. That always happens, right? And God's just like, yeah, you guys just fight amongst yourselves while my people still build the wall. <laughs> he looks and he says, every one of us 
returned to his own work on the wall. And from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. They took seriously the job of rebuilding. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers carried the loads, worked with one hand, and held a weapon in the other hand. Picture that. Picture all these people, like the, the enemy's watching and they're like, they, they've all got swords. Like it, it looks like every one of them is going to be willing to fight and we were hoping to discourage a bunch of them and they would like surrender to them if we just promised them Cheetos and an Xbox, right? If we promise you a house, Cheetos and an Xbox, will you surrender to us so that we can just have America? Sure, yeah, no problem. As long as I get to play and... Yeah. They're looking and saying, they've got a sword. They know that if they come, they're ready to fight. And it says, he goes on, it says, each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building. Try that one. Now, the sword wasn't a broad sword, okay? It's not like they're dragging around. It was, it was a short, like, dagger sword is what they carried. But they carried it while they were working. Listen, when I'm doing construction and I have a tool belt, the most annoying thing I carry is my hammer because it hangs at the side and it bangs the bejeebers out of my knees. And you have to walk around like this to keep the hanger, hammer from banging into your you know, right side and putting bruises on your leg. So you're walking around like this all the time or you're walking with the hammer tucked around like you look cool, right? Like, I'm just holding my hammer. I'm not cool, right? They're walking around with a sword. When a sword hits you, it doesn't, it cuts you. Like, and they're willing to do this because they're so consumed by the work of God, whatever it takes. It goes on and says this, and the trumpeter was beside me. In other words, Nehemiah said, I need to be able to warn the people on an instant when there's attack. You realize that someday the Bible says the trumpet's going to sound and Jesus is going to come with his sword and he's going to end it. This, this is a picture of that. Nehemiah's like, the trumpeters are ready to blast the horn. And when the horns blast, it says, then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out. We are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear this trumpet sound, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. Not, we can win. Not, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and it's all going to work out. He's like, no, no, no. God's got to do the fighting for us. And so when you rally, you better be praying all the way there. <laughs> Lord, I hear the trumpet, help us. Because I know we just got a sword and they got an army. And here I go. And rally to one another, he says. Don't be afraid. Don't respond by separating. Respond by engaging. Respond by responding in, I'm going to defend who God is. I'm going to defend who his people are. He says, Nehemiah goes on, says, so we continued the work. Well, half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let every one and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers and my men and the guards with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon even when we bathed, when we washed. <laughs> that is commitment to defending like, I don't ever want to let my guard down because I know there's an enemy that the second I let my guard down, he's coming in. That's the way we should see it as believers and Christians. Like, I don't, I don't want to let my countrymen down. I don't, I don't want to get killed, but I want to be able to defend. And so I, 
I don't want to be caught off guard and I know there's an enemy coming. It's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, we're to put on the armor of God. And it's called, the sword is called the word. It's the word is the sword. It's the truth about who God is so we don't live in our, fear, in our fears. It's the truth about who God is so we remember who he really is. It's the truth of how he tells us to respond. That's the sword we carry as, as believers. It goes on and it says, in Luke, this is what Jesus said to his people. He also said to them, when I sent you out without a money bag, traveling bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Jesus sent out the 70 the first time to go tell people about him, to take the word of God to the world. And he said, don't take anything with you. Just trust me. Not a thing, they said. He said to them, but now, whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. It's better for you to be a little naked than it is not to have a sword. A little cold than not to have a sword. He goes on and he says, For I tell you what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the outlaws. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. And Jesus says, enough of that, he told them. You want to know why he said enough of that? Because right before this, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest when Jesus comes with his sword and kills all the Romans and they get it. And that wasn't Jesus' plan. Jesus is like, I'm not giving you a sword right now to go kill people. I'm giving you a sword that penetrates the heart. And they misinterpreted this passage where Jesus is like, look, you're going to need money. You're going to need protection when you go out. And you sh that's what they needed in the Old Testament. It hasn't changed. But you're going to do it differently than you ever have because you're not fighting for a land here. You're fighting for me. You're fighting for a land I will bring. He goes on and he says this. Nehemiah, there was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. I love this. <sighs> Women have been created by God to be the nurturers, to be the, the feelers. The, that's, that's part of how, they, not that men shouldn't be or can't be, right? But even biologically, when, when the, when the, testosterone hits the baby in the womb and the sex is determined, it splits the brainstem. Men actually have problems communicating between the sides of their brains because it's actually neurologically proven. So give us some patience, okay? Women actually don't have that brainstem severed, so their brain is constantly talking to them all the time. And we have patience with you because of that. Everything's connected. Right? So it says there was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives. The wives are like, we don't like this. This isn't fun. I don't like that we're carrying swords. I don't like my son's carrying a sword. I don't like all this violence. Can we just go back to when Nehemiah wasn't here? I know it was hard, but at least it wasn't like I'm afraid of dying every day. And it just starts, when that outcry starts happening and that grumbling and complaining starts happening, it spreads like gangrene. Everybody, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, oh, oh yeah. And nobody stops and goes, hold on, what are we all afraid of? <laughs> well, I'm just afraid that, that God's city won't rebuild the way he wants it. No, you're not. That's not what you're afraid of. What are you forgetting about our God? See, we don't stop people in the midst of that. We don't stop in the midst of the grumbling, complaining, and look at someone and say, just stop. What are you afraid of? 
What are you unwilling to remember? Why are you responding this way? And that's what we're called to do as believers in love to one another. To ask them to say, look, I want to get down to business with the Lord. And he goes on and he says, why was there such widespread outcry? Well, we are sons, our daughters are numerous. Let us go get grain or get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and the homes to get grain during a famine. There's a famine going on at the same time they're being attacked. There's a pandemic going on at the same time the church is having issues in our day. The church is being attacked from all sides. All normalcy of what God said is normal and good has been turned upside down, and we have a pandemic going on. And God's saying, I still want you to build. I still want you to go after hearts. I still want you to do what I've asked you to do. It's no different. And they look and they go, still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children. We are, not, we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. We have a human trafficking problem in our world today. Young girls trafficked all over the world. Sounds pretty similar. The Bible hasn't changed. Tells us what our world is like. And some of our daughters are already being enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. We don't even have the ability to feed ourselves, to plant crops, because none of it belongs to us. Because during the captivity, all the land got redistributed and taken. Pay attention as we go through this. Nehemiah 5, 6, he says, I became extremely angry. The word he uses there is kara. I became so burning angry, I'm ready to kill some people. That's how Nehemiah feels right now. And look at why he feels that anger. This is gonna shock you. It should wake you up to a minute to our culture and the lies we believe. And and here's what we always do. We love to dismiss the things of the Old Testament that we think we don't need anymore. And then we love to add the things of the Old Testament so that we can tell people what we think they should do. We don't want to ask God what he thinks of his law and what we should do and not do. And compare that to the New Testament, what he says we should do and not do. Look at what Nehemiah, look at what Nehemiah, I mean, he could be angry about a million things. There are people being sold into slavery. There's all this stuff going on. And look at where Nehemiah's primary anger is. When I heard their outcry and these complaints, after seriously considering the matter, probably praying, I accused the nobles and officials saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. Nehemiah goes right to money. You know, we take a lot of criticism in our church because we deal with money a lot. We talk about it. We're careful with it. We challenge people with it. You want to know why? Because God does. Nehemiah is ready to kill people because the people are charging their fellow believers interest. I wish there were some Christian bankers and car salesmen that didn't do this. I wish there were some Christian bankers and car salesmen who actually practiced scripture. They would try to pursue to find out if someone was a believer or not. But we've just thrown this law out like it doesn't pertain anymore because it's the new covenant. He goes on, he says this, each of you is charging interest, so I called a large assembly against them. 
Nehemiah is rallying people against this behavior. This cannot happen. And there's a reason. We'll see it in a minute. He said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners. But now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back? They remained silent and could not say a word. In other words, Nehemiah, the whole time he had been there, had been buying back people. He had been rescuing people with the funds that he had available. And then those nobles would say, oh, you still owe us plus interest. So give us your son and daughter and then we'll consider it paid off. They were probably paying people or looking at people and saying, well, you're going to work on our part of the wall for us because you owe me and you're in debt to me. So you work on your part of the wall. We're going to take a break. That's what was going on. And it incensed Nehemiah. This isn't right, he says. And it said they remained silent and they couldn't say a word. You want to know why they couldn't say a word? We're going to buzz through some scriptures and this is going to shock you. Exodus twenty two twenty one. You must not exploit a foreign resident or, oppo- or oppose him since you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Now, foreign residents in Israel were required to live by God's laws. They could not come in and disobey God's laws or they would be killed. But if you agreed to God's commands, his laws, and you would practice that, they were to treat you kindly. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me, and I will certainly hear their cry, and I'm coming after you. My anger will burn, and I will kill you. That's Kara. I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows, and your children will be fatherless. In other words, I'm trying to get your attention that if you're going to act that way, if you're going to act wrongly in your anger, if you're going to actually use people, I might put you in the same circumstances and your wife and your children in the same circumstances that you think you have the right to put people in. He goes on and says this in Exodus. If you lend money to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a money lender to him. You must not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, return it to him before sunset. If your brother becomes destitute and cannot sustain himself among you, you are to support him as a foreigner or temporary resident so that he continue to live among you. Do not profit or take interest from him, but fear your God and let your brother live among you. You are not to lend him your silver with interest or sell him your food for profit. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. God, you'll see it, we're gonna read a couple more. He keeps saying, you were a slave, you had nothing, and now, now that you have something, you think you can treat People because, well, I've earned it and I'm great and I'm, no, God says. He goes on, if your brother among you becomes destitute and sells himself to you, you must not force him to do slave labor. Let him stay with you as a hired hand or temporary resident. He may work for you until the year of Jubilee. You know what the year of Jubilee was? Check this out. You are to count seven sabbatical years, seven times seven years, so that the time period of the seven sabbatical years amounts to 49. Then you're to sound a trumpet loudly for all to rally to. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you will sound it throughout your land on the day of atonement. Why the day of atonement? 
That's the day when God pays the price for our sins. Christ was our jubilee. He was our final atonement that paid the price to set us free from slavery and debt and the fear and remembering our sin. And he set us free so we can respond to him. All of this is designed to show people grace. And we keep slapping works back on everything. And Nehemiah gets it. And he's like, I'm done with this. Where is the grace of God among my people? He looks and he says, when each of you is to return, or he goes on, he says, you will sound it throughout your land on the day of atonement. You are to consecrate the 50th year and proclaim freedom in the land for all its inhabitants. It will be your jubilee when each of you is to return his property and each of you to his clan. There is a, do you know how many times that, People of God celebrated the year of Jubilee we have historically? Like none, zero. Nehemiah's getting ready to try to do it, but they just do it in Jerusalem, not the whole land, is what you're gonna see in a moment. Why don't we wanna celebrate the year of Jubilee? Because it's way too costly to my bank account. It's way too costly to what I've earned. It's way too costly to my life. It's way too costly to what we've tried to build. Can't celebrate that year of Jubilee. Now, did they celebrate the year of Jubilee and forgive all the foreigners? Nope, the foreigners still owed them. Wow, isn't that an incredible evangelistic tool? (laughs) Our God's a God of grace and freedom and love and compassion. You're enslaved. You're still enslaved until you submit to our God. And if you submit to our God, and you prove that by the way you live your life, by the surrender of your life to him and to his ways and his word and what he does, jubilee is coming. Jubilee is coming. A forgiveness. And if you read the rules in Leviticus 25 about the year of Jubilee and how to lend money and do money, oh my goodness, it's not how we do things. Not even close. And of course, we just make the excuse, well, that was back then and now we live in a different world. We live. Isn't Nehemiah living in a foreign land? Isn't he a slave? It, aren't they under a foreign power like we're under a foreign power called America? Like, he's, like Biden, Trump, Obama, Bush, none of them are my king. My king's in heaven. I submit to them because they're an earthly ruler. So why can't I practice my life like Nehemiah is getting ready to call his people to practice their lives differently from everybody else around me? Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid I won't get mine. I'm afraid my kids will suffer. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. I forget what God has done. I forget what he said. I don't care what he said. So I respond the way everybody else responds. And it's not just with this, but Nehemiah could have picked anything to be angry about. They were married to foreign women. They were so, they were, many of them were still worshiping idols. And the thing Nehemiah is the most angry about is the way they're practicing money. You realize there's a reason why in America we don't have debtors' prisons. When, when the founders founded America, they allowed for bankruptcy. You live in Iran, there's no bankruptcy. You're going to pay for your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather's debts that you have where you're at for the rest of your life. There's no getting out of it. And when our founders found our country, they didn't want to go full in on this, but they had wisdom enough to say, we've got to do things a little bit different than the king we used to be a part of who would force our children into military service based on our taxes. He goes on and he says this. God says in Deuteronomy, do not charge your brother interest on money, food, or anything that can earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, 
but you must not charge your brother interest so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you do in the land you're entering to possess. You will not be blessed if you don't practice things the way God asks you to practice them. You just won't. He goes on, he says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it because he will require it of you and you will be counted against you as sin. In other words, he says, you shouldn't be charging interest and you shouldn't be borrowing money too quickly and making vows. You better be careful with your vows and you better be careful forcing people to make vows because it's serious. God says, goes on and he says, Lord, who can dwell in your tent, Psalms does? Who can live in your holy mountain? The psalmist is saying, there's no way I can be with you. The one who lives honestly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Look at this in verse four. Who keeps his word, whatever the cost, who does not lend money at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be moved. Ezekiel says, now suppose a man is righteous and does what is right. Just and right. He doesn't lend at interest or for profit, but keeps his hand from wrongdoing and carries out true justice between men. He follows my statutes, keeps my ordinances, acting faithfully. Such a person is righteous and he will certainly live. Now suppose the man has a violent son who sheds blood and does any of these things and lends at interest for profit. Will he live? He will not live. Now suppose he has a son who sees all the sins his father committed and repents. And though he sees them, he doesn't do likewise. He keeps his hand from harming the poor, not taking interest or profit on a loan. He practices my ordinances and follows my statutes. Such a person will not die for his father's iniquity. He will certainly live. Verse 22, Ezekiel says, you take interest and profit on a loan and brutally extort your neighbors. That's a sure sign that you've forgotten me, he says. He says, that's a sure sign that you've, did I go past that one? Sorry. He says, that's a sure sign that you've forgotten me. Goes on in Psalms, teach a youth about the way he should go and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Everybody loves that verse. You know what the second verse after it is? Make sure you teach a youth that the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. I didn't write the book. (laughs) I didn't write why Nehemiah was so ticked off with his people. We live in a broken world that's going to charge interest. They're going to do money. We have to know how to participate in that, just like the children of Israel had to. Solomon, David, all of us, Jesus paid his taxes. They did what they were supposed to do. But then it's, if we're not careful, our fears and, and the things that we want to remember get a hold of us and we don't respond the way God wants us to respond. Nehemiah finishes up the book and he says this in the chapter. He says, then I said, what, are you doing? what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? In other words, Nehemiah recognizes if we don't do things the way God wants, God's gonna take his hands off and the enemies are coming in. And he says, even if I, as well as my brothers and servants, have been lending them money and grain, please let us stop charging the interest. It's not wrong to lend, but he's like, do not charge them interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil you've been assessing them. He says, repent. There's another story where this actually happens and God's people weren't very happy about it. Matter of fact, they criticized Jesus because of a man who did exactly what Nehemiah asked the people to do. His name was Zacchaeus. 
And he stood there and he said to the Lord, look, I believe in you. Look, I've given half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if you've extended anything, or if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today, I recognize salvation has come to my house. Jesus told him, because he is too a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell the parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. And Jesus told them, I will judge you by what you've said, you evil slave. This is the parable of the talents. This is the guy that buried his one talent in the ground and thought, well, I'll just give it back to Jesus when he comes back. If you knew I was a tough man collecting what I didn't deposit, reaping what I did not sow, why didn't you put my money in the bank? That's what the Romans And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. Not your charging interest, at least deposit it with the wicked Romans. So he said to those standing there, take the mini away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. Jesus says there is a, if you won't let Jesus, if you will not, if you're going to have fear and you're, and those fears are driven and it shows up in your bank account how your fears are driven, he says, check your heart. Jesus said this when he came. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and proclaim the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up a scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him and began saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. I am Jubilee, me. I am the Jubilee, and if you have me, you don't have to worry, you don't have to fear anything else. You just follow me and be responsible to what I've asked you to do. Nehemiah goes on, it says, they responded, we will return the things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priest and made everyone take an oath to do this. Nehemiah's like, no, 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 no. You're not just, oh, yeah, 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 we'll do it. He's like, oh, no, no. You're going to take an oath in front of everyone so that when we have to kill somebody because you didn't obey, we can look and say, they signed an oath. They didn't follow through. It goes on, it says, I also shook the folds of my robe and said, may God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May be shaken out and have nothing. And the whole assembly agreed. Amen, they said, and they praised the Lord. And then the people did as they had promised. There's a revival breaking out. Over what? We're going to do things simply the way God wants in all areas. This passage, because again, our fear shows up in how we handle the resources God gives us. What are we trying to keep? And God says, do you remember what I've done and can do? Respond to me. Look at your heart. Nehemiah goes on, he says, furthermore, from the day the king Xerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until this 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking food and wine from them, as well as a pound of silver. The subordinates also oppressed the people, but I didn't do this because of the fear of God. 
It's not because I was trying to get you to like me. It wasn't because I was trying to get you to my church or get you on my team. The reason we do things the way we do is because I have a fear of God that's well greater than any other fear I have. And I want to be careful with what we do with the resources God has provided us. That's what Nehemiah says. He says, I have commanded my people, the guys I'm in charge of, live differently. Instead, we de- I devoted myself to the construction of the wall. I and all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. In other words, the land was allotted. And then he said, there were 150 Jews and officials, as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days. But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because of the burden on the people was so heavy. In other words, I fed my people. I did what I had to do. But I'm not looking to make a profit off God's people. Can I just tell you, we have an entire Christian system in our culture that's looking to make a profit off God's people at all times. We have the internet. Why do you need to publish a book? You can put it for free as a PDF to anybody who wants it. Most of the guys that write books have already been paid to write the book. And they're getting paid again for the book. Especially pastors. I struggle with that. I don't know how God's going to hold them accountable to that, but I can tell you and promise you, if I ever write a book, I will not charge for it. You want to know why? Because you already paid me as your pastor to preach and write this stuff. Why am I double dipping? I'm not saying the writing books are bad. I'm just saying... Why aren't we asking these questions? Because Nehemiah took fear, remembering, and responding seriously in his culture to the point where he called his people. And look, as we wrap up, this is what he said. He said, I was devoted to building what you wanted to build, God. And then he says, please, Lord, remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah just says, I hope that people remember that I wanted to build your kingdom and I wanted to build your people. I wasn't afraid. I wanted them to remember you and I I want them to remember your work and I want people to respond like God asks us to respond without fear, remembering who he is and responding to, to what's coming one day. Let me ask you this morning. As we preach this message, as I go through this, and what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that you struggle to remember the way God wants you to remember it? And how are you going to respond? This was Nehemiah and the people's response in the midst of the rubble, in the midst of a famine. And God is calling us, his people, to respond. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to be in your word. Lord, thank you for how just dead on Nehemiah's words are to us as a people. Lord, these things are hard to wrestle with. They're, they're the reality of the world that we, we live in. But Lord, you've warned us from Genesis to Revelation. You've, you've told us not to be afraid. You've told us to remember. You've, you've told us to respond properly to you and to respond properly to those who are actually your children and those who aren't. Father, help us to see that we don't have to be afraid. We can cast our cares upon you because your yoke is easy and your burden is light and you love us. 
Help us to remember what you've done and what you will do one day and what you said is coming. And Lord, help each of us to respond. I don't know where people are at in this room. Maybe some need to be baptized. They need to talk to me, talk to our staff about doing that next week. Maybe some here need to take seriously dealing with some sin in their life. Maybe it's their finances. Maybe it's a past relationship that still brings anger and fear and, and remembering. I don't know what it is, but you do, Lord, and I pray that you would show them that you want them to respond knowing your grace that you love them, that you give us your laws, your statutes, and your ordinances because you want us to see how incredible you are, how loving you are, how full of grace and mercy you are, and how you want other people to see who you truly are. Thank you for all these things in your name. Amen.